Hi, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of Muslims Doing Things. This is your host, Layla Shakely at Leilul, venture-backed startup founder and indeed a Muslim doing things. This week, I have a really awesome guest for you guys. I'm super excited to have you listen into my conversation with Tahara Mafi, an author and overall just a superstar. Hi, Tahara. Hi. Hey, what's up, Layla? Tahara is a New York Times bestseller and a National Book Award nominee and an incredible and prolific author. But Tahara, I don't want to introduce you because I won't do it justice the way that you will. Tell people what you do. Oh, man. Um, no, I thought you did a great job. I, I'm Tahara Mafi. I write books for children and young adults, mostly young adults or anybody who wants to read these books. And uh, I've been writing, I've been publishing books now for about 10 years. I'm about to publish my 12th book this June. And uh, yeah, I'm a writer. That's my life. That's incredible. A dozen books is incredible over a decade. That's like, you know, I, I turn everything into math. So that's, like a little, that's a lot of books for a yeah. very short career so far. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad you think so. I don't know. There are many more prolific authors than than I am, and I'm I stand in awe of all of them. So, but thank you. I appreciate that. No, you're really incredible. And what I would love to first get into is the how. What's the backstory? And you know, where were you born? Where did you grow up? You're an Iranian American, and then we'll kind of yeah. So I, I would love to hear from you your backstory and how you got here. Oh, man. Well, that would take a thorough rehashing of it all, I think would take a few decades. But um, but the short of it is I was born and raised in Connecticut. I lived there for about until I was like 12, just under. And then I moved to Northern California. Then I moved to Southern California. Then I moved around a whole bunch in Southern California. I've been I've moved around a lot. I switched much like the character from A Very Large Expanse of Sea, I moved around a lot. By the time I was a sophomore in high school, I was in my third high school. Wow. So I've been around a lot. <laughs> I've moved around a lot. As a, you know, as a Muslim, hijab-wearing, Iranian-American child of immigrants, the journey was particularly, well, I don't know that it was exactly unique, but I will say that I, I think I've found that my experience was different from a lot of the a lot of the other Muslim people I met in Southern California in particular who grew up within a community, I didn't even meet another girl who wore hijab until I was 14. So that was, you know, I grew up feeling very isolated and very far from, you know, far from a tribe, far from my people. You know what's wild about that story is I think I met you right around then. You must have been 14, 15, 16. Yeah, and I right. distinctly remember when I met you because first time I met your brother, I was a total tomboy. And I was like, they're so cool because they're, <laughs> so, they're so much like me. Like I, I distinctly That's remember sweet. thinking, you know, they're cool. They have like normal hobbies. Like they, you know, we very much are on the same page. So I'm, I'm glad that you ended up down here, but I can't wait to get into a very large expanse of sea because while I'm not a young person, that book gave me chills. It, it still does. I was oh, telling you before the podcast, so I listened to it in a day yesterday and I feel that book so deeply in my bones. For those of you who haven't read it, you absolutely must. It's a, a novel about a girl post 9-11 and the yeah. protagonist, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm recapping it. No, no, no. Much. No, you're doing great. I love it. 
But it's about a a 16-year-old girl, Muslim girl, Shireen, who really faces discrimination and and perseveres through the typical high school experience and is particularly kind of finds finds her way through typical teenage things, romance, but also breakdancing. But the reason why I love the book and why it actually makes the hairs on my arm stand up to her is because it makes me feel the way I did when I was that age, which was inconsequential. And I didn't realize I felt that way until I read that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I was consequential because other people felt inconsequential, too. And she actually wrote out why and how. And that's kind of a period of my life post 9-11 that, frankly, I have tucked so far behind and far away. But you described that experience in such clear terms. And I realized that I internalized that inconsequentialness. It's, It's just crazy. Reading it really took me back. Oh, wow. That's amazing. I'm really touched. I mean, I feel that, you know, I know I can, I can only imagine how you must have felt because like, I feel that too, you know, like I was totally drawing upon personal experiences when I wrote that. So like, I feel your struggle, (laughs) you know, I feel your pain. I feel it. And I'm, and I'm glad it resonated. No, it definitely did. And even when you're describing your book brother, um, you have four brothers. I've only met three of them, but you have four and your book brother definitely carried some of the characteristics of of the cool dudes I would hang with at the mosque when I was like 15. I was like, Oh, that's slightly familiar. These are, these are cool dudes. Again, like I started. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The brother character definitely like I took like a lot of the broad strokes of many different facets of my brother's personalities, my four brothers, and just like mushed them down into one. It was fun to write. It really was. Was it easy? Like, I feel like it was just, yeah, a lot of it had to have drawn from your personal experiences because I didn't write it and it felt like it drew from my personal experiences. (laughs) I mean, pretty much every horrible thing that happens to Shireen in that book actually happened to me. So like, it was pretty easy for me to be like, you know for me to just build on and you know what's funny is that like she goes through a lot of crappy things in this book and like I didn't I mean it's like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to like mining all the things that like you know the pain of of childhood past I'm like that's you know it's pretty cool that I can turn it into an actual object that I can it, it's cool that I can take that pain and like turn it into a living, <laughs> but it's also, you know, but then there's also the complication of the commodification of self, which I struggle with. But uh, I mean, that's kind of a separate conversation, but for sure, like I definitely drew upon my own pain, my own struggles, a lot of the things that happened to me. I was a freshman in high school when 9-11 happened. I used to break dance in high school and I used to break dance with my brothers. But also, so like, you know, it's like you said, I think part of, I mean, a great deal of the work that we're all trying to do, and, and honestly, half of it is just existing, is to try and show that no one community, there is no community that is a monolith we are complex, we contain multitudes. There are thousands upon thousands of individual gradations that comprise the people in our communities. And um, unfortunately, the stereotypes against which we are forced to live our lives become the backdrop of our lives. And we have to fight every single day to overcome these stereotypes and to show the world that we are far more complex than they make us out to be. And honestly, it's exhausting work. And I don't know that we should be held uh, responsible for doing all that work. 
And again, that's another conversation too. But what we're trying to do, I know you're trying to do that. I know I find myself always trying to do this, is to talk about, to tell the story, the stories that we don't really hear, the stories of our lives from our community, and to tell lots of them. And the story of our life is like, yes, we experience a capital S struggle, and we go through all this pain, and we deal with all this trauma and macro and micro aggressions leveled against us. But also, we're just teenagers too. We're just humans too. And we deal with all the regular pain and difficulty that like any person does growing up, but it's all compounded with the struggle of being other. And and what does that look like? So that, that really, I couldn't agree more on something I actually realized in the book, which also resonated was that the protagonist, Shireen, works really hard to fight these stereotypes. She gets food thrown at her and goes through these situations where she's eating in the bathroom or tries to disappear. And she spends so much energy with the ultimate goal of just being unnoticed. Like all that energy goes into this goal, which is just to not be noticed and to live her life and dance. Yeah. Or to just live her life. (laughs) You know, like she's interested in breakdancing the way that like somebody else is interested in like photography or whatever. Like she's not trying to make a career out of it. She's just interested. She's just a person. But yeah, you're right. I mean, her number one goal is to just disappear. And it's impossible. (laughs) It's impossible. So so back to the Thara journey. So you move to California, you move around different yeah. high schools, go to yeah. college, but your college, from what I understand, was not related to literature per se, nor was your first job. Can you share that with us? You know, kind of. My my, I ended up going to a liberal arts college. It's this tiny little school called Soka University. I was really attracted to the school for a number of reasons. One, because I got a full ride. (laughs) So that was, I mean, it was a private university and it was very expensive. And I was like, they want to pay me to go to school here? That's amazing. And that was super attractive. But I was also just fundamentally interested in their values. Uh, It's a non-sectarian university, but it's based on like Buddhist principles of like peace and pacifism and like becoming a global citizen. And, you know, again, you know, I was searching always for community and for a place of belonging and honestly, genuinely searching for a path to peace, for peacefulness in my life and among my peers. And again, I'd moved around so much as a kid that I had become really disillusioned with like the entire institution of education. I was super tired of, of all kinds of school. I was just done with school. I hated school. I hated everything about school. It just felt like a prison to me. I had been forced to just like attend all these various institutions um, as a consequence of where I lived, you know, where my parents decided to land. And um, every experience was just so brutal. And starting over and over and over and over again as a, as a girl in hijab, and the only girl in hijab, the only Muslim kid in school was just, it was just super brutal. And I don't know, Soka just sounded kind of like a dream. It sounded like this like amazing utopia. And you know what? It kind of was. (laughs) It was a really amazing experience. I really loved it. It really was super inclusive and welcoming. And I just had such a great time there. And it was really small. Like I had spent so long going to these really big schools. My high school was 
like 3,000 kids or something like that. And the entire student body at Soko was like 400 students. Wow. And um, so my class was like 75 kids, my, my entire college class. And I just loved it. I loved how intimate it was. And um, so this is all just to say that like, I actually, my had a con- my concentration was in the humanities. And so for four years, I had a I really had an amazing opportunity to just study in depth all kinds of literature. My goal was always to spend my life adjacent to or immersed in literature. I always, I've been an avid reader and a, a, like a lifelong lover of books. And, um, but I never, I never thought about being a writer. That did not at all seem even remotely accessible to me. Again, I'm the child of immigrants. My, my parents' expectations for me were like, I mean, first of all, it's not just that my parents were like the typical, like you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or whatever. Like my parents were were pretty cool in that regard. Still, they had high expectations for me, but they were never like drill sergeants. But at the same time, you know, your parents didn't come here and kill themselves to give you a better life and to deal with the rigmarole of all of this, all the nonsense for you to just like try and be a starving artist. And I know everybody has different experiences with this, but not all immigrant experiences are the same, of course, but I didn't have a safety net. You know, I couldn't afford to be a starving artist. I had to get a job and I had to work and I had not just survive, but thrive. And so being a writer had never occurred to me. So like you said, yes, I did study literature for four years, but it was like, you know, I'd studied like critical theory and like I was reading books in other languages. Like I was going to go into comp lit. I was going to get my PhD. I was probably going to be a professor. <laughs> That's what I thought I was going to do with my life. What what I would love to know is then what? Like how, how did you make that leap? Because if you were to ask, I know a lot of things, but if you were to ask me today, like how do I become an author? I literally would not even know where to begin. So mm-hmm. how, at what point did you realize, no, I could write, let me give it a shot. I would love to hear that journey. Yeah. So it was a natural progression of the journey I was on, which was that, so I finished, I, I graduated from college. My last semester, I think I was taking like five I was taking five classes and I was doing my thesis and and I was just I was just burnt out. I had been working a lot and I I worked all through college. Part of my scholarship was a work study program. So I worked all through college and I was taking all these classes and I was just and I loved it, but then I was just kind of burnt out and I wanted to take a little break. I wanted to regroup. I wanted to save some work, save some money and use that time to apply to some PhD. I wanted to jump jump straight into a PhD program. That was my plan. And or, you know, if that didn't work out, I would have probably applied for masters or something. But anyway, I just mean that was my original plan. But because I had been working those 4 years, through at my alma mater, I had been working um, those four years through school. I had this relationship with my boss who was like, she was amazing, um, such a generous, incredible woman. And she she wanted me to stay. She wanted me full time. And she like created this position for me that I was very grateful to take. So I worked and it was one year I worked there. And during that time period, I very quickly got bored because I would work and then I'd come home and I realized I missed my books. You know, I missed my books. I missed my discussions. I missed my papers. I missed studying. So I went to the bookstore. You know, I was like, okay, well, you're bored. Go get some books. 
And that was the beginning because when I went to the bookstore, I hadn't been to the bookstore like a Barnes and Noble in a long time because I was just reading school books, like the kind of books that you buy from your university store. And I'd had no time for recreational reading. And in fact, I had forgotten what it was like to read for fun. And I was, I walked around the bookstore like a kid in a candy shop and I was just exploring, you know, just walking all the aisles. And this was when the young adult genre, I don't know that it's a genre, but the young adult section was having its resurgence. Young adult was new at that time, basically heralded, you know, ushered in by Twilight and then the Hunger Games. And I mean, you know what? Say what you will about Twilight, but Twilight gave me a job. Twilight gave so many people a job. I read them all and enjoyed them thoroughly. I will not lie about it. Yeah, I mean, I did too. (laughs) I was like, what is this? You know what's funny is my brother gave me Twilight. That's a totally (laughs) other, that, that man put that book in my hands and he was like, you have to read this, it's amazing. And I was like, okay. Anyway, so I was like, what is this? You know, when we were growing up, we had... Judy Bloom and Harry Potter, maybe, and uh, depending on you know exactly when you were when you were in it, and that was basically it. You know, we had like the Babysitters Club and Sweet Valley High and stuff, but like we didn't have young adult the way that we do now. And I felt like I got to relive this moment from my youth. I just started reading all these books because, again, for four years I had been immersed in these like onion skin thin page books, these tomes that I loved and I still love, but it was like dense and it all was about like, you know, your job in reading it was to analyze it and discuss it and write about it and not just to read it and enjoy it, you know? And sometimes your brain needs protein, but sometimes your brain needs a Twinkie. And it honestly, like, I love all kinds of books. I love all of it. I love the heavy stuff. I love the romance. I love picture books. I love memoirs. I love all of it. I'll read anything. And it felt like there was this need in my mind for just like really good escapist fiction. And I just, I picked up a couple of these books and I just started reading them and I was hooked. I read like a hundred, a hundred young adult books, like in a month. And I was just like, cool, I think I could probably write one of these books, (laughs) which is the height of hubris, really. But I gave it a shot. That's how it started. I just decided and I told no one. I was just like, maybe I can, maybe I'll try. Now, the story of how do you get a book published? I didn't know either. I knew absolutely (laughs) nobody in publishing. I knew nothing about the industry. I had no connections. I had no friends. I knew, you know, nothing, nothing. And I just, you know, I Googled it. I Googled how to publish a book. And it's not like there's a how-to manual, though it is easier now than it was like 11, 12 years ago, whenever this was that I was, you know, doing this research. Um, But, you know, I started spending my lunch breaks at the bookstore. I would read spines to learn about imprints. I would read acknowledgments and dedications within the books to learn about editors and agents. I would study the books I liked, the ones that I enjoyed. And I'd think, okay, well, who was this person's agent? Where did they publish their book? What was their marketing, you know, and publicity like? Um, I would go on forums. I would just, I read every blog post I could find. I spent every free minute I had researching the industry. And I, you know, I just started writing manuscripts 
And the first manuscript I wrote was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. I mean, it was so bad. But I still tried to get it published. <laughs> I had like no, uh, I was like, I don't know. Like, I'm just gonna, man, I made so many mistakes. But, you know, I learned every manuscript I wrote got me closer to a manuscript that made sense. And uh, I wrote five manuscripts. So in about a, in the year I had this job, it was about a year and a half, actually, I wrote six books and six manuscripts and five of them. It was the fifth one that got me an agent or no, it was the fourth one that got me an agent, which didn't end up working out. I ended up she told me to lower my expectations. At one, I swear to God, she told me to lower my expectations and I fired her. Yeah, the start of a great relationship. She says, I mean, I was just like, abs- I will absolutely not lower my expectations. You are the, you are the lowest expectation I have now and we have to yeah, remove that. Like, no, this is not a good fit for me. And you know, it was terrifying because I had nothing. It was a really big deal for me to even get that agent. I couldn't believe I'd even managed to get an agent, but I was just like, listen, if I'm going to do this and, you know, I have to come back to what I said a little earlier, which is that um, I cannot emphasize enough how much of a difference it made to me in my career to think about publishing, not as art, but as a business. And I say publishing, not writing the book. Writing the book. Yeah, I feel like that's art. That's creative. That's your creative right? But the publishing side of it is 100% business. And um, it's really hard, I think, for creatives and artists to manage both, which is why you need a good agent. But still, you have to help yourself navigate those those tricky and oftentimes treacherous waters. And uh, I think artists are really good at selling themselves short. I know I am. And I think if I hadn't always known that like I can't write books unless I'm going to make a living I can't do this unless it's going to give me a life unless it's going to build me a career that mentality drove me in this business a lot differently than I think it would have had I approached it as like a really contemplative art process do you know what I mean I 100% know what you mean because effectively you're not just writing on the side because it's a fun creative outlet. It absolutely is a fun creative outlet, but it's going to be your career and you're going to be good at it. And you were good at it because I can only assume Shatter Me was either one of those six manuscripts. It was the sixth one. (laughs) It has over 300,000 reviews on Goodreads, okay? Like you are not messing when you said it, you know, the expectations were high and you were going to do it right. Like this is a breakout book that led to a series which was breakout kids idolized and I went to a a signing once with you and I remember somebody walking up to you with art of you and I learned after the signing I don't even think from you maybe from ransom or somebody else that it wasn't the first time that kids have this level of respect and love and it warmed my heart because it was just so incredible to see that your writing had that impact on these young people I mean if Camila idolized somebody I really would like for it to be you personally (laughs) oh That is so sweet. Thank you. That's very, very sweet. Um, I really, really, that's very kind of you to say. But you know, it's like, I honestly, I say this to my husband all the time. I am married to, for those of you who don't know, I'm married to a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful white man. And uh, it's hilarious the conversations we have because I'm always, you know, we talk about 
we talk about privilege a lot. We talk about race a lot. We talk about the differences in our own lived experiences a lot. And he's just like the most wonderful person. But, you know, I, I always tell him, I'm like, and I, I'm, I'm positive that you can relate to this. I know there are so many people who can relate to this, but it's like, you always feel like you have to work 10 times as hard for a quarter of the respect. <laughs> and like, it's, you know, and then even then it's like, you have to show up and you have to work that much harder. And then, I don't know, I feel like people will still, people will give you crap for working so hard. But it's like, if you don't work hard, then if you don't work 10 times as hard, you won't even get like, it's just, you know, it's what I guess what I'm trying to say is thank you. I refused to lower my expectations, not necessarily even just because I wanted to make a business out of it, but because, you know, we're talking about Muslim people doing things like the barrier to entry is high. You know, you have to work 10 times as hard. I couldn't lower my expectations. And uh, it's like, I remember my mom saying to me once, like my mom uh, got her degree here. She went to school here and, uh, you know, she aced all of her classes and all the other kids would be like, would ask her, you know, oh, how are you? What are you studying or what are you doing? And she'd be like, or, or what's your secret? And she'd be like, I don't have a secret. I don't know how to study in this country the way that you do. So I just have to learn everything, Wow, you know? So she'll, she's like, I just will memorize the entire textbook because this isn't my language. This isn't my country. I don't know how to like game the system and study just a little bit. I have to do all of it. Wow. No spark notes. N- none of the hacks. So that means she's actually just going to learn right. the content. Right. Exactly. <laughs> incredible. Exactly. But, you know, I-, I have to ask, and I was wondering this. So for those of you who who don't know Tahara's husband yet, you absolutely will know him by the time I'm done with the sentence because you have to Google him. He's incredible as well. Ransom Riggs. He's also an author. And but you, so you're an author and you marry this incredible dude. And as you noted, a white dude who's also an author. Yeah. You're both creatives. And as you noted, there's always a business behind creativity. Yeah. So what people don't do typically in creative industries is compare notes, right? So then you get in and you're like, wait, 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 hold on. What? Like, what have you learned, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in so many words from him? Or do you find yourself constantly learning like, oh, yes, I will not sell myself short. And in fact, like, if he's treated this way as somebody who surely has a certain amount of privilege, I will demand that as well. You know, actually, that's such a great question. But what's funny in our relationship was that the conversation we often have is I'm saying to him, you know, you could be doing so much better. (laughs) Like you don't know how much power you have. If I had the power that you have, I would be doing this, you know, and, uh, or I would do it like this. And I mean, God bless him. He's always like, he's like, okay. It's, you know, like when I met him, I was like, you got to fire your agent, the terrible agent. You should hire my agent. She's a great agent. He was like, okay. (laughs) You know, things like that where I'm like, man, like you have so much going on. Like you could really. So, you know, it is interesting. It is interesting to see, you know, what his lived experience is like as compared to mine. But I will say this for the publishing industry is that it is a female dominated industry. Hmm. So it's not exactly the same. It's not like corporate America where it's much easier to be like, oh, will the men get treated like, I mean, 100% that's there. 100%. There are very few straight men in our industry and they are all treated like they can do no wrong. But for the most part, the editors are women, the writers are women, 
it's the salespeople, it's the guys in the, mm -hmm. you know, the P&L people, like they're all, th those are the dudes. But like even in marketing, pretty much across the board, most of the people who work in publishing are women. So it's a very interesting, very, very interesting process, uh, system rather. That's pretty cool. I mean, like, and I was just laughing to myself when you were talking about pushing Ransom harder because you yeah. guys are both insanely accomplished. He has like a Tim Burton movie. Like, y'all, yeah. neither of you is a joke. <laughs> like, no. I'm just laughing, imagining the dinner table discussions. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I don't mean to make it, I hope I didn't make it sound like this man is not totally self-motivated. And I mean, he works super hard. Not at all. And like is, you know, totally a powerhouse of his own. But I just mean like it's actually... It's seldom me thinking like, oh, you have this, I should also do it like this. Or it's actually usually he doesn't realize it's like there's this powder, there's powder in the keg and he doesn't even realize it's there, you know, and I have to be like, like, look at the power you wield. Look at the like the position you're in. You could be doing this. You know, you could have this. Don't you should not feel satisfied with you know, with this particular thing, like you should, you should ask for more or you should, do you know what I mean? Like I, it was crystal clear, crystal clear. Like, I don't think you understand how clear the message is to me. Right. And it's because I live it. Right. I'm just like, yeah, like sometimes, you know, you don't have to jump 10 feet in the air to ultimately jump net one foot. Yep. Like yep. you could just jump one foot and yeah. get one foot high. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it. I mean, it. totally. I mean, it's as simple as like, you know, like when I walk into a room, like even in my industry, and it's not like specific to the people in my industry. This is just this is just endemic to my life, right? As a visibly Muslim woman, it doesn't matter where I go. I walk into a room and I face immediately when I'm faced with strangers, I face a thousand stereotypes and um, assumptions about my character, my belief system, my intelligence, whether or not my husband gave me permission to be there. I mean, like it's, you have to deal with all kinds of garbage. Like the moment you walk into a room and, you know, you don't actually deal with it. These are microaggressions. So they're actually harder to fight, but you feel it. You feel it when you walk into a room. You feel it when people refuse to take the time to pronounce your name. You feel it when people tell you how articulate you are with like absolute surprise in their eyes and uh, you, you feel it, you know, like when they expect you to not be able to speak English properly, even though you are a published author who has been writing in English for 10 years, <laughs> you know, like it's, so what I'm saying is like, I'm saying what you're saying, which is, I'm like, <laughs> when I walk into a room, I have to deal with all these things. You don't, you know, in that, like when I'm speaking to my husband, I, I say that, you know, like even in that there is like an untapped power that you should harness. So um, I actually think that I'm able to give him perspective that makes him stronger. I hope that that's true. Uh, at least that's how I feel. But Oh, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. I mean, like I really like I adore you both and I respect you both so much. I am absolutely sure of it. And, and also like, you know, I'm one who just kind of receives the outcomes of your guys' work and it's great. <laughs> so all of this goes to, <laughs> that's all I really have to comment on. I consume oh. it. I love it. But I, I have a question for you. So you were talking about the microaggressions and showing up somewhere and having to fight all these silent things, which was probably why your protagonist, Shireen, in a very large expansive sea, spoke to me so much and why your work speaks to me so much. Something that I have to address is your fashion is gnarly. Like you just have the coolest freaking oh, style. Thank right? you. Right. And surely 
it, it just really is like you're cool, right? <laughs> and so I wonder how much of that is a consequence or a result of not only being a creative, but the realization that fashion's almost like books you wear, right? It's a narrative that walks around. That is very interesting. I have never heard that before. Fashion is like books you wear. I like that. I just made it up. <laughs> no, I like that. It is a narrative. You know, I uh, I think it's so comforting. I've had a lot of conversations like this with journalists and interviewers or whatever, but it's like, I feel like what I'm about to say, you will really understand. And it's very comforting to be able to speak to somebody who I think totally gets this, which is that, you know, you become aware of your clothing in earnest when you wear hijab because you're wearing an article of clothing that is highly politicized. And um, you realize that from a young age, you realize the power of clothing. And whether you can, cons- whether you inject, you know, you, you consume this, ingest this consciously or not, I feel like it becomes, it is inevitable as a woman in hijab not to realize the power of clothing um, as a Muslim in America in particular. But for me, this, this hit really hard from a very young age. And so I think I have always been aware of myself and the power of expression through the articles we wear. And, you know, you make a choice. I suppose you make a choice to like, you know, it's kind of like if people are looking at you anyway, you may as well give them something to look at. I mean, that's part of it. (laughs) I don't fully subscribe to that idea. But I also think the other part of it is like, it's just always been uh, something I've been interested in fashion has always been something that's interested me in a way that I don't know that I realized was unusual. Like even in middle school, like I took fashion, I don't know that I'm, you know, fashion, but like I took my clothing very seriously. I didn't have a lot of money to spend on clothes, but I took very good care of my clothes. Like I had one pair of jeans, but if my jeans were faded like, you know, from use, I would go to the local, you know, Joanne's fabric or whatever and buy denim dye indigo and I would dye my jeans blue again. And, uh, you know, I took very good care of my, my shoes. Like I would use that like white, you know, the, for like, if I had sneakers, I would like clean the, I would wash them. I would wash all the laces. I would spend evenings before school, like scrubbing my shoes and like using that like white leather paint. I forget what it's called, like making them all white again. And I took very, very meticulous care of my clothes. uh, And I didn't have very many of them. And I started, you know, like things didn't fit me. And like, I would buy my clothes from like consignment shops or like secondhand shops or find things on super sale. And, uh, you know, like I, I remember buying a pair of pants from Old Navy for 50 cents. Wow, And they were like five sizes too big for me. And I thought I can do something with this. And I took them home and I cut myself a pattern from my own sizes. And I hand tailored these pants, these jeans that lasted me at least another year or two. And uh, like, I would just, I was always, and I was like 12, you know? So like I, I took, I was always interested in presenting myself in the best way that I could. And what's funny to me is that I'll still look back at old photos of myself and I looked like a complete idiot. (laughs) My fashion sense was just ridiculous. I don't know what I looked like, but I, but you know, I thought I was taking really good care of myself. (laughs) So I just mean, I was always interested and I was always aware of clothing as something that spoke very loudly, um, even in your silence. You 
couldn't say that louder or literally you don't have to say anything to clarify it because it's one of those things that I feel so much too. And I've always been cognizant that fashion is really a tool in correcting a narrative that I had no job in creating. So right. <laughs> it, it really is powerful. And and it's funny because when I was younger, I mean, your, your break dancing is what skateboarding was and actually still is. I'm very much, I'm a 35 year old woman who skateboards. Like I'm, I'm not above it. I love it. Right. But <laughs> when I, when I, I was younger, it. I would go to the skate parks and wear the big jeans and, and wear the skater shoes. Well, skater shoes are practical, but the point is, is I would present a certain way to kind of seek validation, but to seek membership into a club, right? right? And membership out of, out of the club that I was subscribed to, whether or not I had I had agency in, in the initial one. So I totally understand that. Um, and I, I, too, look back at the photos and laugh because I thought I was so fly. I know, right? Like, we thought we were so cool. I thought I was so fly. I mean, I look at these, like, kids now and they're, like, nice hijabs. They all know how to do their makeup. They all look so nice. They've all got skin care. Like, they're, like, 15, 16 years old, like, looking, like, so good. I'm like, man. <laughs> Listen, I did not peak in high school. <laughs> no, no, I peaked at like 28 and we're, we're okay with that. Yeah, we're fine. But, uh, <laughs> we're going to be okay. fine. <laughs> we're going to be fine. Oh, man. Uh, so I I would love to ask you a few lightning round questions. Sure, and yeah. then I'm going to get to part of the interview, which I'm really excited to ask you about. But I'll, I'll let you um, I'll wait in anticipation before we get there. What is your best serial killer quality? Serial killer quality? Oh, man. Uh, I don't even know what the qualities of a serial killer are. Uh, <laughs> what do I have to choose from? I don't know. I mean, I bet they're organized. I bet they're creative. Maybe they're meticulous. I'm not really sure. What would you think? Serial killer <laughs> quality. Yeah. Okay. Let me. I'm sorry. This is supposed to be quick. Serial <laughs> killer quality. Well, she's not a serial killer, guys. I can rule that out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I don't know. Like I, I'm, I'm pretty organized and clean. I don't think that's like a serial killer quality. Like, is that a serial killer quality? I think they'd have to be that to be good. You know, if that was their interest in life. Probably, probably. But you, you made me think about that question more than I ever have. So I think I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I was like, I'm so ready for this lightning round, and then I just. I just failed right out of it. I'm so sorry. You did so great. What's the question <laughs> you hope I don't ask? About the serial killer thing, obviously. <laughs> that was lightning. That was quick. I mean, <laughs> I didn't do so well. If you didn't write, what would you do? Oh, I'd be a fashion designer. Oh, you'd be so good at it. The next one is totally a leading question. Smartphone or dumb phone? Dumb phone. Like, gotcha. I love that post. You talked about how you went to the dumb phone. Tell me about that. Why? Oh, oh man. Um, I mean, for all the obvious reasons, right? You get like it's you just need to disconnect sometimes. But I can't fully disconnect from social media because it is such an integral part of my business. Like it's such a I have to be online for lots of reasons, especially now during COVID when like half of like when I can't travel anymore, I can't tour the way that I once would. And the only way to communicate with people is directly through the internet. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have a social media presence through which I might be able to connect with readers. Um, so I have to maintain my online presence. But, you know, I get tired of it. I don't, I think often it's very funny. It's very strange to force artists who are often, not always, but often introverts 
especially someone like me, my, my job is to write books. I like to be quiet and alone. Uh, I don't, you know, I spent a lot of time like in my own head. I'm not like, I didn't get into this job to be like in front of other people all the time. It's, it's, you know, there's a dichotomy there. That's very, it's, there's a, it's very strange. Um, but you have to be like a good public speaker. You have to be able to manage lots of personalities. Like it's very, the job description is more robust than you might have first expected. And there was a lot of adapting to that. And, you know, I feel comfortable with social media, but I still need lots of time off from it. And I like to be present with my kid, with my family. I like my real life and I like to be a part of it. So the dumb phone gives me the flexibility of um, being online and still connected when I want to be like my smartphone still works but the dumb phone I grab and go like if I'm about to leave the house I won't take you know depending on the journey if I need to have my smartphone with me for certain reasons I will but otherwise you know I keep like my kindle on me or a book or something so that when I have some downtime I don't just reach for my phone and look at social media I pick up a book and read I love that. And for those of you who are Gen Z and don't know what a dumb phone is, there was a time before iPhones when phones didn't have the internet. If you Google it, you may be able to see some imagery that'll tie you, tie you to the concept. So one thing I wanted to quickly outline, so you're a mother like me, and I always love keeping up with your, your wonderful, wonderful daughter. And I noticed when I'd reached out to you and we were scheduling time that you have something else in common with me, which is like, routine, it seems. You seems like yes. you've really done yeah. a great job separating your work life from your home life. And I I love it's kind of this is personal and selfish. I just love hearing people's routines. So to get everything you get done and maintain what you maintain mm -hmm. at home, what is your routine like? What's a day in your life? Okay. Uh yeah. Absolutely. Routine is number one. Without it, I think I would just I don't know what I do. I need it 100%. So yes to that. Um, I wake up very early. <laughs> I'm usually up around five. I suppose that's not very early depending on who you're talking to. But I'm up, you know, every day at about five in the morning. And um, I get a lot of work done before my daughter's even awake. And it's very, very important to me to get dressed for the day when I wake up. I wake up, you know, I shower, I get dressed, I get fully dressed for the day and uh, I'm like ready for anything. And I have my coffee. I usually remember to eat breakfast and, but I'm working, you know, answering emails, checking the stock market, <laughs> like doing all kinds of uh, various like grown up tasks. And, um, and then it's time to get my daughter up and I'll get her up. And if she's, you know, going to school or has like something going on, then she's off. And otherwise, you know what I mean? Like the, it, it really, I will say, here's where it begins to fall apart. I always wake up early, but then it depends on like what's happening in my kid's life. Mm -hmm. That's how my day is scheduled. <laughs> Especially COVID, you know, like luckily my, my daughter is young enough that she's in the, um, she's still considered on the, the childcare level. So like her classes are open, her school is open, but they have these like really highly regulated little pods, uh, like little cohorts, they call them. Um, and she can, she has like her, her little, you know, team of people that she can be with. And, uh, but then it depends, like sometimes, you know, there are breaks or we're keeping her home or whatever's going on. But when she's in school, 
or if she's, you know, gone and I've got like actual and interrupted work time, then I work. I also work out. Um, that's a huge part of my, my life and my routine without exercise. I think I would, I don't know. I sit at my desk all day. I have to keep moving. So I will say like, I have a routine. It was a little bit disrupted by COVID (laughs) a lot of it, (laughs) but generally speaking, I feel like right now we're in like, we're still in survival mode, but generally speaking, the routine is get up early, get as much as you can get done before your kid wakes up. Like during Ramadan, like I would wake up at, we would, what time were we waking up? It was like two thirty, three o'clock in the morning to wake up for, Mm -hmm. for, for Sahar in the morning, Suhoor. And, uh, I would just stay up. I mean, I was just up. I was, I would wake up and I would stay up. And uh, those were like, man, I was so productive. That <laughs> month. It's amazing. Wake up early is my number one piece of advice. Wake up early, go to sleep early, wake up early. I'm the same way. I've always been that way. I've just been a morning, per- like I'm not a night person, but I've mm. always been a morning person. Very much into dawn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. I love it. I love it. So one thing I cannot wait to ask you about before we kind of get into what's next and the plugs is you have a script out by for the, a very large expansive C. I know it was picked up last year by the same production company that got the Oscar nominated Hidden Figures. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible by their production company. I would first of all, I'm just going to stop talking. You just pick it up from here. How are you feeling? That must be amazing. That's so exciting. What was it like reading your book as a script? What should we expect? You know, it's really it is exciting i'm also apprehensive <laughs> it's such a it's been great i can't really complain they have been so good about listening and i mean so far so good you know i'm still i am cautiously optimistic but my hopes are still firmly sea level because i don't really want to get too much and too far ahead of myself you know, Hollywood is a fickle, it's fickle. And this is, it's delicate. And I really want them to do a good job. And I, you know, before even selling it, like I, you know, it was very important to me to even put clauses in the contract that like, you cannot demonize this character, you cannot Mm. represent Islam in like, some weird, obviously more elegant language than that. But like, you, you, you cannot denigrate Islam. You cannot, you cannot present any of these characters as like terrorist adjacent. And they've been great. You know, they've been great. And I I really do think that like, this is a good moment for all of that, that people are really willing to listen. And that has been a surprise and a delight to me. I was very pessimistic, but they, they've really, they've really been listening and they've been great. And uh, we have our director actually, the script is, is ready that we've got, we just secured our director for the film. Um, and you know, inshallah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we, we will. I will be intently watching we'll inshallah. I literally cannot <laughs> wait. I'm so excited. And what else, what else can we expect out of you in the, you know, semi near term future? Um, what's next for Tahara? Uh, well, I have my second work of realistic fiction comes out in June of this year of 2021. Um, it's called An Emotion of Great Delight. And it is not a story of delight. It is actually a very sad book. Um, but, you know, a hopeful one. It's a sweet one. It's another, you know, it's got a, like a love story. and uh, But it's it's about pain and religion and family. And, you know, it's kind of a kind of like a cousin to a very large expansive sea. A very large expansive sea took place in 2002. And this book takes place in 2002. 
three. And yeah, very large expansive sea took place in 2002. Right after September 11th. Right after September 11th. I listened to it yesterday, so it's quite fresh. Yeah, yeah. They, I was like, you would know, right? <laughs> you know better than I do. Literally in one day, listen to the whole oh, thing, my second time reading you're it. You're so sweet. Um, yeah, so this is this takes place the next year. Different character, of course, different story. And, you know, the, the purpose of this is to, like, again, we're following here another Iranian-American girl who wears hijab. She's living in post-9-11 world. But now we've declared war on Iraq. And the political mm. climate has, you know, the temperature has gone up. And things are changing. And uh, I'm sure, I don't know if you remember this, but, like, I remember this. I remember FBI agents, like, you know, infiltrating the mosques and calling people and like everybody being under surveillance and people being cold called by the FBI. And like, everybody's like, I mean, it was a weird, weird time. And um, it was really, really, really tough, tough to live through. Yeah, really tough. And almost, it was almost more difficult after we declared war on Iraq when like, you know, suddenly <laughs> it's, this is your country, like you're an American, but like it, it feels like people are waging war against you. And it's a very complicated, it was a very complicated time. And so this is kind of, uh, it gets a little, it's heavier, it gets darker. Um, it's a more serious book. A Very Large Expansive Sea was a lot lighter in tone. This book is a lot sadder, but I don't want to say like, it's so sad. Like there's no hope. There is light. There is hope. Um, it is like, it was, uh, I really love the book. I really love it. It was, uh, it was hard to write and, um, but I enjoyed writing it and I'm happy it's going to be out in the world. So that's up next for me. And I'm also, I just finished, um, I'm now like diving into edits on the first book in a new fantasy series, which is, you know, it's like game of Thrones, but set in the Persian empire, which has been super fun to write. And that'll be out next year. That's super exciting. I'm looking forward to it, particularly the book about being, a, I mean, for obvious reasons or what should be obvious, post 9-11 hijabi woman. And truly, like, the only way that I can describe the way I felt after reading A Very Large Expansive Sea was just consequential. Because now I, I know I am, you know, for lack of a better word, powerful. Like, I know I'm somebody now. Right. When I was 15, I didn't feel that way. And like, I didn't think anybody felt that way. And you really took me back and put meaning and impact to those years. And I truly cannot wait to read it, even though I know I need to be in like a headspace that will uh, allow me to really live through it because I'm sure I'll be living through it to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all your kind words. I really... That really means a lot to me. Thank you. I truly do adore you. And for those who are listening who are not as lucky to um, maybe get as much of you as, as I at least hope to after COVID or I do, where can people find you and follow your work? Um, well, you know, I've reduced my internet footprint to basically just Instagram. <laughs> so you can find me there. I'm just Tahereh, T-A-H-E-R-E-H. T is -E -E in Tom, A is in Apple, H is in Harry. E-R-E-H. You can tell I have, I've tried to spell my name over the phone for many people. <laughs> I know how to do it now, but that's it. That's me on Instagram. That's, that's perfect. And I'll be sure to put it in the show notes. So thank you so much for spending the time with me today, Tahara. I cannot it's wait for pleasure. the next step. You really are a role model to me. And yeah, I, I guess I adore you. What a way to end. I adore you. <laughs> thank you. Oh, you're so sweet. I feel, I feel exactly the same way about you. You're a superstar. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. 